to Closing the Digital Divide, the podcast dedicated to creating meaningful conversations and sharing valuable insights from industry leaders, policymakers, equipment manufacturers, and others on Closing the Digital Divide. I'm your host, Charles Thomas, and together we'll explore the policies, challenges, triumphs, and innovative solutions that are reshaping the digital landscape. Join us as we shine a light on the importance of equal access, digital literacy, and the transformative impact technology can have on our unserved and underserved communities. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered as we work towards closing the digital divide one episode at a time. Welcome to the conversation that is shaping our future. This is Closing the Digital Divide. Today's topic is a hot one, and I cannot think of anyone more knowledgeable to discuss this with than the person I'm about to introduce. Elizabeth Bull, who is Aristotle's Unified Communications CEO and former chair at the FCC Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, in addition to serving as president and chair of Aristotle, Elizabeth is counsel for the cyber law firm Beacon Legal Group, a member of the Arkansas and American Bar Association, and current policy committee chair for WISPA. Elizabeth has published numerous articles and is a nationally recognized expert on internet security, law, privacy, and technology. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to uh, discuss this topic with you as I, I don't think there's a lot of people out there that are really aware of the, the challenges and the depth of this um, topic we're uh, about to start. And I'll introduce that topic in a second, but the first thing I always do is I always ask guests who are the first time on the show, what is the digital divide and why is it so important? that we close it. The digital divide is the idea that some people have access to broadband, maybe multiple choices for broadband, whereas other people don't. And that can take the form, many different forms. Sometimes it's because they're in a rural area and the infrastructure is not there. Sometimes it's because of redlining and you end up with these broadband deserts and cities where there's not sufficient broadband for whatever the reason might be. But it's basically the idea that some people have and some people have not. And why is it important to get it closed is because broadband is the great enabler. It's, it's an equalizer. You can work from home, telemedicine, basic services that people who live in cities like myself take for granted. Those don't exist for some people. And I was at a session this morning with a, where we was a roundtable to talk about experiential relate. And one of the thought exercises was imagine you don't have the Internet for 24 hours. So I would challenge everyone to do that. Imagine you have no access to the Internet, not on your cell phone, not in your house, nowhere. And it's and my answer was, well, I could do that for 24 hours. But a lot of what we take for granted who have access to the Internet, people who don't just simply can't. And that is a great exercise. I, I'm sitting here mentally now when you mentioned <laughs> that, thinking to myself, well, I couldn't do this. <laughs> right. Um, right. But in reality, the internet is interwoven into everything we do. Yep. And um, without it, it's a great point. Um, I'm actually going to use that with my team. I'm going to have them yeah. imagine that. And especially with my tech team, because when we have to go out and get people back online for whatever reason, um, they have to understand there, there's there's a real pain there. 
Um, it's like yeah. having my favorite my favorite ice cream and not being able to go get it. No, I'm sorry. We won't, <laughs> <laughs> won't go there. <laughs> right. No, it's terrible. I, I, I really mm -hmm. feel for people who who cannot access the Internet for whatever reason. So closing it, sure. I think, is critical. Economic development, you name it. So absolutely. And in all seriousness, it, it, it really is. Let's jump yep. right into our topic of today, which is. We all know the B program is about to be released, but there's a little caveat in that program called the letter of credit. Can you provide us an overview of the letter of credit and, and its significance within the BEAD program? Sure. So the letter of credit requirement in BEAD is in place to protect the American taxpayers from the idea that a provider might receive grant funds and be unable to deliver on the program. And it requires any recipient of BEAD money to put up a standby letter of credit in the amount of 25% of the grant amount. And that letter of credit can be called if that provider defaults. So it requires a bank who can put up the letter of credit. It requires um, collateral for that letter of credit. And it requires that the, um, that the entity who's receiving the grant be able to well, post that collateral and be able to move forward with the credit. And one significant point that I want to make now about the letter of credit from the banking side is that from a bank's perspective, even though this is not money that comes into, doesn't leave the bank, doesn't go into the provider, there's no benefit to this at all to the provider. But from the bank side, if this letter gets called, they have to come up with the cash. So banks view a standby letter of credit the same way they would a regular letter of credit, which is they want it collateralized in the same way as if they were actually giving that money to a provider. So I would say on the surface, it seems like a decent way to protect taxpayers. Right. And I think that that is, I'm not going to ascribe negative motives to anybody because honestly, I think that is where people were coming from. And I think it, that the idea that a letter of credit is like, oh, well, that makes sense. And of course, letters of credit were used during the CAF2 auction and again in the ARDOF with the FCC. And in the FCC's case, they didn't know any better. They had used letters of credit in Spectrum auctions. And in that context, it makes sense because if I'm going to be bidding on Spectrum, then I should be able to prove I can buy it. And that's what the standby letter of credit should be used for. Sure. But because sure. that's what, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, no, I, was, so I was agreeing with you. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And so um, that's what they should be used for. But the FCC didn't understand anything else. And so they imported it into CAF. And um, my company is both a CAF recipient and an RDOF recipient, and we know firsthand sort of the the consequences of a letter of credit versus some other options. And when you're talking about broadband deployment, these are construction projects, right? So right. why are you using a letter of credit for a construction project? It literally makes no sense. But I think it's coming from a place of ignorance on the part of the policymakers. They don't understand how the banks look at it. They don't understand what it does to providers, and they don't understand that it doesn't really I mean, I guess it gives them a level of protection, but there are other methods that would work just as well. Sure, and, and we're gonna talk a little bit about some of those other methods here um, shortly. Yeah. But what are some of the specific information or documentation typically required when submitting a letter of credit? Uh, excuse me, when submitting a letter of credit? So, the well, as far as the BEAD program, obviously we don't know specifically, but but assuming it's similar to ARDOF, then the bank would submit 
a let literally a letter in a certain format that says, you know, we are supporting this provider. This is the amount of the letter of credit we're issuing them. And and if USAC is monitoring, it has to take a very specific form. Like it can't vary by even a word. So word to the wise for anybody who is going after any kind of a letter of credit, if you've been given a form by the by USAC or anyone else and they say use this form, even if they say or something like it, it's not or something like it. It is that form. And every word has to be like that. For example, you have to put USD and the dollar sign, not just the dollar sign, because it could be Canadian dollars, I guess. I don't know. So so it's very, very specific. But that once that letter goes in from the bank, as far as the federal government is concerned, it's good. However, on the bank side, you have to provide financial statements, audited financials if you have them, which you will have to have for BEAT anyway. Um, you will need to provide uh, proof of collateral. And in general, although banks will tell you they will accept non-cash collateral, the fact of the matter is they want cash collateral. And so that bank is either looking for a CD in their bank or a, a personal guarantee where they can lay their hands on some money in that amount or, you know, actually a bank account with that kind of money in it. And so pretty much because the bank has to come up with the cash at the end, if it gets called, they want to have cash from you in order to secure it. So they might say they'll take equipment, but they really won't. There are some exceptions if you are a um, telephone company or if you are a co-op, there are banks that treat these more like loans and they have special sort of things because they're special entities. But for most of us who are providers, those are not available options. And the banks that we've worked with, they all want some form of cash or cash-like collateral for these. So this appears to be a challenge for some smaller and mid-sized companies where, you know, cash flow can be a challenge mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, and you don't want that cash kind of sitting on the sideline um, that you're you can't touch or be able to use. And so you you've mentioned some of those challenges or or, or pitfalls. Are there are there others that? Um... Yes. So well. So I don't know. This is really a pitfall. A letter, a standby letter of credit is treated as a debt. So it's going to go on your balance sheet as a debt that you owe, and it requires some explanation. And you know you don't really want to put it above the line because of or wherever the debt goes above the line, because it's right. not an actual debt that you have to repay. But it does impinge your ability to get credit when a right. when a private entity is looking at your entire financial situation and they see oh well you've got you know three million dollars of cash tied up in the standby letter of credit that could be called that's three million dollars that's coming in their mind coming off your balance sheet and you owe potentially owe to the bank so the fact that it's a contingent liability doesn't really help you so much because the way investors look at it is it's just a liability sitting over there oh absolutely so, yeah so let's man this it, it this is really starting to hit home let's 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 kind of walk through a scenario right because sure. most of these projects are going to be fairly significant projects Yep. That are that are going to go on. I mean, there's you know, it's not you know these onesie twosies. We're we're talking large municipalities, especially in rural areas. You got large areas out there. Walk us through, let's say a twenty million dollar project. What that may look like. So so the 
<laughs> yeah, these projects are going to be bigger. Um, and I, I call it my sad math because basically what you what this program does when you take it writ large is it says for every for $20 million, you have to come up with a 25% match and a 25% standby letter of credit. So that match, if it's a $20 million project, you've got a $5 million match, then you have to have a $3.75 million letter of credit, which represents 25% of the $15 million grant. So that's $8.75 million just coming off the top. These awards are taxed. So you've got whatever corporate tax rate coming off the top. Then you have environmental compliance and other things that are coming off the top. And so at the end of the day, you are asking a provider, oh, and I left out the letter of credit fees. So you have letter of credit fees between one and 5% that the bank is going to charge for carrying the letter of credit. And to be clear, those are done annually. So for every one of the four years of the program, you're being charged one to 5% as that letter of credit renews. And so at the end of the day, you're being asked to take this $20 million project and do it for $10 million. So you're, the providers are being asked to the project is going to cost 20 million. The providers being asked to do it for 10 million, but in addition, they're being asked to come up with 8.75 million in cash, which is their portion of it plus the letter credit. And then they're expected to make this sustainable in areas that have less than 100 people per square mile density with fiber. So it's it's very weighted in such a way that unless you have a lot of wherewithal or you have or you're a special entity like a co-op or a phone company, it's going to be very difficult to comply with this, honestly, for any business, but it's going to hit small businesses particularly hard because small right. businesses may have be asset rich and cash poor, and it creates this, this um, uneven application. And of course, I, this may not be exactly where you want to go here, but the, the bead program, they have a huge digital equity piece. And it's very ironic to me that the bead program has requirements in place that by their very nature are going to eliminate most, if not all, the women-owned and minority-owned businesses because those businesses tend to be small businesses. And so it's going to loop in all small businesses, but it's going to disproportionately impact those minority and women-owned businesses because they are small. And again, cash is a problem. My second big issue, obviously, with the sad math is that why were we taking $8.7 million and, well, I guess it's really $3.75 million plus the fees to the bank mm -hmm. and pulling it out of deployment and giving it to a bank to sit there? That doesn't move that doesn't move the needle forward on broadband. And when you have such low density in these poverty-stricken areas, I mean, we cover 10 counties. Nine of them are persistent poverty. It's just kind of mind boggling to think, OK, 50 percent off the top has to be paid in cash in one way, shape or form. And then we're supposed to make it sustain when what a 30, 40 percent take rate, 60 percent right, right. if you're lucky. That's 60 people. It's really the, the it's like the math doesn't work out. Yeah. And it's yeah, also. No, I, I, oh, my goodness. I agree. And, <laughs> and 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 for our audience, this is kind of my second time walking through this and, and hearing <laughs> Elizabeth explain this. And my goodness, my I, literally I was like, how are we going to do this? It, it became personal at that point. It's like, how are we going to do this? Because, right. as you said, as it, this really affects 
uh, women-owned, minority-owned, just small business, small to medium-sized businesses. Because oh, yeah. even if you are, let's say you're in a large business, okay, that $20 million project may be $100 million, right? Exactly. And the numbers change significantly. And so it's kind of like we want to protect, as I said earlier, on the surface, it seems like a great idea. We want to protect the tax, the taxpaying right. community, but we're going to limit the ability to close that digital divide by limiting the number of ISPs that are out there that are already, and, and to your point, some of us are, are doing some great services out there and getting people service. Um, and we want to be able to expand that. But right. it's almost like you're going into it with not one hand tied behind your back, but two hands tied behind your back. Um, yeah. And, and if I can say, it's very unusual to have both a match and a letter of credit, because the, the whole point yes. of a match is that the provider's got skin in the game and they've got to have the cash. Right. And both of those things, it's like a belt and suspenders approach to this, because if you have if you can come up with a 25 percent cash match, then you've got the wherewithal to build the network ostensibly, one. Two, right. it's not like they're giving you the cash up front. So we had a, a CARES Act build and we actually received $31 million in our bank account. And we were like, whoa, get me an auditor because I wanted to make sure that we had every penny accounted for, which sure. we did. But B doesn't work like that. We have to deploy first, spend the money first, and then go get reimbursed. So there's this lag which also inherently protects the government because it gives, I mean, the taxpayer, because it gives them an opportunity to look at what you spent your money on, make sure it fits within the grant, deny a receipt, ask for more information. It's not an automatic, here's a check in your in your mailbox. Unlike RDOF, incidentally, and RDOF, you get the money automatically every month like clockwork. So it makes, although it's still bad in the RDOF context, it makes marginally more sense. But in a reimbursement program, where you've got a 25% match and reimbursement, I'm not really sure what this adds to the equation, given the counterbalancing negative impacts of the letter of credit, coupled with the idea that there are other things that we can do that would accomplish the same end, maybe in a better way. So um, I'm going to talk USDA reconnect. They require a match, but not a letter of credit. So you have FCC with a letter of credit and no match. You have USDA with a with a match and no letter of credit. And then you've got NTIA coming in here and going, well, I'm going to take a piece of this and a piece of that, and I'm going to marry them together in this program. And suddenly it becomes like not it becomes difficult for certain becomes impossible for some providers and difficult for any provider to look at this and say, I well that makes sense. That really is justifiable unless they're trying to supplement funds they've already got going somewhere. So are there any exceptions um, to the letter of credit requirement? Yeah, there are, and they're not really fleshed out. I don't think we know entirely how they're going to be applied. I mean, technically, you can go in and ask for a waiver, but it's my understanding that that waiver will be granted on very narrow circumstances, such as hey, I'm the applicant, I'm a municipality, I'm doing muni broadband, I'm not allowed to have a standby letter of credit, sort of that type of thing where there would be a legal barrier. I think that they will, they're talking about waiving the match and maybe the letter of credit, but at least the match in certain um, high poverty areas, if it's a high cost, not high poverty, if it's a high cost area, they may waive portions of this. But again, it's very discretionary. It's whatever NTIA feels is the right thing to do on a very circumstance by circumstance basis. So there's not blanket waivers. 
So I know we hadn't really talked about this earlier, but um, what what does that process look like? Do we know, you know, how to? I don't think we know. I'm going to guess that it will be in the final rules how you apply for a waiver. I know that uh, in the past when we've applied for waivers with the NTIA, which was only once, we wrote a letter. And it may be as simple as as a letter, but it's got to have all of your proof. I'm asking for a waiver because of this, 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 this reason, because it's a high cost area or because it's going to be burdensome on this community or I'm I'm a municipality and I can't. I think you're going to have to prove up your case sort of in whatever letter you send in TIA. But I don't know that they have fleshed out their process. So I'm not sure that we can can know that yet. Right. So you you touched on this a little bit earlier. What what are some of the other alternatives, such as a performance bond in lieu of letter of credit? So that actually is, I think, I think there are several different options here, but but one of them is a performance bond. And a reason that that would be particularly good is that a performance bond is a flexible instrument and it's used all the time. When SBA loans for construction, when when any government entity, with a, for a highway, for a building, for whatever it might be, any construction project, they use performance bonds because performance bonds ensure performance or they get called. I will, in the interest of being you know, totally transparent, the reason that the FCC wants a letter of credit and not a performance bond is that a performance bond is an insurance policy, which means that there is, I guess, a chance that the surety company could come in and say, well, actually, they did meet the terms and the government just wants to be able to like, give me my money. You know, so it's a very so it's a very different. But I think that trade off. To improve the program and ensure participation of everybody on an equal playing field, I think that that trade off is actually worth it because a performance bond protects the taxpayer, because if right. if the person says, thank you, I got half done and see, I wouldn't want to be a, they're going to be able to call the performance bond just like they would a letter of credit. And secondarily, from a provider perspective, if I'm using a contractor, my contractor can get bonded and that bond protects me and that bond protects the government. And I can get every single one of my contractors to post a performance bond. And so if they fail, then there's some recompense and it places sort of the burden where it ought to be, which is on the people actually deploying the network. If that's my company, I post the bond. If it's my contractor, he posts the bond, he or she. So basically, I think that that a performance bond is where I would push this. The other benefit of them is that they can go from uh, they is that they don't stay the same amount. They do cost. They're one to two percent, but they but they don't stay the same amount as the project gets built out. It's unclear to me why if why you would carry a 25% letter of credit for four years when presumably you're building out a quarter of the network every one of those four years, shouldn't that that letter of credit be reducing over time? And a performance bond will. A performance bond will reduce as things get certified and approved. So in my opinion, I don't think it should be an, an either or. I think it should be an and. I think that we really should be looking at providing sort of a menu of options, because here's another option. Right. These are reimbursement programs. A small cash poor business might need to go to a lender or an investor and say, listen, I'd like you to front the money for my $20 million project. And this is what you're going to get back. You're going to get back, you know, whatever, 25 million or whatever that looks like. And um, it could even be done on a quarterly basis. Like, give me five. Now give me five again, because it's a four-year project. So whatever that looks yeah. like, it, and then the provider 
could wait until the end when the deployment is complete and then seek reimbursement for the whole project, at which point, why would they ever need a letter of credit? You know, if I'm not even asking right. for federal money until the end. So I think if if we were trying to do this in what is, in my opinion, is the right way to do it, we're going to give, some people might like letters of credit. Co-ops might like them because they have special banks that work with them. But mm -hmm. I think that we need to, we need to say, all right, it's a letter of credit or it's a bond or it's a, you wait until the end to get your money or whatever. And I think that we can have options to include expanding the people who can do letters of credit past just banks. I mean, and, right and now, I banks like, are the only, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really like what you said. They have a, a, a menu of options that we protect the taxpayer, but we give the higher level of flexibility to right. the people that are actually out there doing to doing the work, you know, and 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 let's face it, yeah, some people get in trouble and 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 they fail, but no one is out to fail. No, I don't think no one is going um, to go through what it takes to apply for this money with the intention correct. of failing. I mean, that's just not why they're doing it. Yeah. I, I have to say too, you know, please, the giant providers have failed over and over and over again, and over again. They've they failed with USF. They're failing with CAP, but they keep getting money because they're giant and and all of that. And they ignored rural America for years and years. And now that yes. there's 62 billion dollars coming in, we're going to rig the rules so they're the only ones who can apply. We're already out there. Your company, my company, other companies like ours. We're already serving these communities and the providers have. And I'm and I'm not harshing on anybody in particular. They have economic reasons for why they don't do those, but it isn't right at this late stage to say, well, thank you so much. It's like, um, this is a very bad analogy, but it's like the spouse who puts the other spouse through college. And then as soon as the other spouse is making money, they're like, okay, I'm out. And that's kind right. of what this feels like. It's like, we've been in the trenches this whole time. So here comes this program and it's designed for large players. A absolutely. And and like I said, I, I in our last uh, podcast, I was talking to Steve Swervel of WISPA and that was one of the things that we talked about was that, you know, we're, he mentioned, you know, we're down in the swamps, you know, we're up in the, up in the, up in the hills, we're up in the mountains, we're out in the prairie, we're, we're everywhere. And right. the burden now seems like in this program has been put on this, the, the, the backbone, what I call the backbone of broadband to this point, which is the smaller to midsize companies out there. And um, if I had my druthers, uh, I would make some changes at NTIA. Uh, number one would be to have you in charge of NTIA so that uh, Thanks. <laughs> we, we could have some some good rules out there that protects everybody. Um, so we're, we're getting close to uh, the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask one more question. Um, do the states have any leeway concerning the letter of credit? So I think they do. Um, and it, it varies, depends on how the state wants to, how hardball the state wants to play. So there are states who feel that they have been dictated to and that they have to follow this letter of the law. There are states that say, you know what, I think that there's flexibility here. I think that we can get around this this way or we can work with it this way. The states have a lot of say. If the state broadband offices would come together and say, this requirement, this letter of credit requirement does not work for my state, 
because I have all of these unserved people in these low density, poor areas and they will not be sustainable. So we need you to rethink this and, and do the menu. I think the states have a lot of influence, but when the rules come down, they will not have a lot of leeway. So the time for them to make a statement and say, yeah, this is a bad idea is now. And I think there are some states that don't get it, quite frankly, and I won't name states either. But I think there are some states that that just quite don't quite get it, um, but they need to get it and they need to understand that they could be preventing fully half of their provider communities from participating in these programs. And you're not going to get everybody served if everybody's not participating. Thus, the digital divide does not get closed. Bingo. Wow. You know what? I, I can't think of a better way to end this episode. <laughs> Full circle. On that. that was awesome. So much phenomenal information. Um, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Tell our audience how they can learn more about Aristotle and all the great work you guys are doing. Sure. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn and you can look me up there. My company's website is Aristotle.net. And you can find us on the web there, get information about our company. And obviously, we have a phone number 501-374-4638. You can call and get to me that way. And um, otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out. We're very, uh, we're very much about the community as a whole. And we encourage people to engage. The more people that engage with this issue, the more it will move the needle. And I think people not being aware has been a problem. When we went to talk to NTIA, he said we were the first people he'd heard it from. And then as he started talking to people, he realized there were so many more people who were concerned. So I urge you, um, feel free to reach out to me, check out our company, at our, you know, at our website and um, be loud. Yes, and we are going to join in that being loud. You might have noticed that uh, I'm, I'm such a shy, quiet person uh, <laughs> when it comes to these types of things. So, uh, but no, we're, <laughs> we're definitely going to push this um, as, as far as we can. If we're going to close the digital divide, we need to have as much flexibility while protecting uh, the taxpayer. Um, 100%. But it's important that we close this from, you know, working out in specifically for me in rural areas. Um, you you see the challenges that people have. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get this done, um, I had uh, Blair Levine on one of the shows and he said, this is a one-time deal. And I was like, yeah, you're right. This is a one-time deal. Let's get it right. <laughs> right. That's right. Got to get it right. So we've come to the end of another empowering episode. And first of all, I want to express my deepest gratitude and thank to Elizabeth for joining us today and sharing all of that valuable insight. Um, we also want to thank our listeners. And to get more information, uh, please, please, before I get off it, please share this. This is very important. This is a very important topic that we need to get out in the general public. Um, with, with, if you're part of a state, if you're part of a municipality, if you're an ISP, you need to be aware of this information, first of all. Um, but remember, the power to bridge di the digital divide lies within each one of us. It is all of our responsibility to champion digital inclusion, advocate for equal access, and to embrace 
all of technology's potential to take us there. By doing this, we can create a world where everyone has a fair chance to thrive in the digital age. To hear this and other podcasts, you can find us at ctdd.castos.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great day.